How did it start? I mean, have you had this particular fear all your life? No, it began when we moved to the West Indies. I never could get used to the sticky heat and the feeling that there were creeping things all around me. You're very imaginative, aren't you? Very. I guess it got the best of me. That and never knowing when I might put my foot down on something coiled and hissing. It seems as if you were living in a perpetual state of Halloween. Is that how the cats came into it? I was about to tell you. The natives believe in metempsychosis. They believe they took the shape of cats after death. I've never felt too much at ease with cats, and right about then, my life became a rather horrifying round of squirming cats and hypodermic needles and serum bubbling in bottles. Of all of us there, I was the only one who caught the fever. I was in a delirium for weeks. One night in particular. it been since you had yourself a big hot screaming ear full of forgotten horrors <laughs> well that's too long pull in close now for a crepuscular half hour or so of the forgotten horrors podcast with your hosts john woolley michael h price and my own self wolf brand jack <laughs> So we're going to uh, we're going to get right into it with uh, with a film. And, you know, I read somewhere and I was trying to find out, Michael, exactly where it was. And it's probably not right. But somewhere I seem to remember reading this was the only real horror film released in 1948. I've run across that, but I think uh, our definition may be broader than many people's definition of a yes. horror film. Yeah. Um, thanks to uh, thanks to that uh, notorious old bigot H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Horror is where you find Horror's it. That's where you, you find it. He had, yeah. he had his moments, but uh, the more you learn about the guy, the creepier he becomes. Well, that's right. And unfortunately, that happens with a lot of that's that whole feet of clay thing, isn't it? When you oh, get close yeah. to your idols. Yeah. Yep, yep. Although sometimes your idols are great, like Robert Block. Yeah, like Robert know? Block, like Pete Seeger, like like uh, mm -hmm. like so many, so so many of them. Like when I when when I knew Bob Wills uh, during mm -hmm. childhood. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, the, 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 you defy expectations oftener than you play into them. You do, and it would be cynical to say that you know it always happens with feet of clay. I mean, I think about uh, I think about people like Hugh B. Cave. Now, I think about our friend David Friedman. My gosh, what a wonderful man Dave Friedman was! Oh, what a splendid fellow! And, uh, and that's the that's the thing that comes from getting close to the really great ones. They, they may uh, they may be avatars of so called bad taste, right? Uh, and then you come to realize that. A bad taste 
is a statement of individuality. <laughs> That's right. And we've sure made a lot of statements of individuality on this program. Well, howdy. <laughs> I'm telling you. All right. So we're talking about The Creeper from 1948, released by 20th Century Fox. And uh, Joey always likes first, of course, to uh, do a little bit of a plot synopsis. So what it amounts to is a um, couple of researchers come back from the West Indies, along with the daughter, who is played by uh, Janice Wilson in her last film she gave up after this. And uh, it, although the although she is second billed as the female lead uh, beneath June Vincent, the film really kind of revolves around her and her nightmares about cats and different things. And uh, they're doing research, as it turns out, on injecting vital organs with phosphorescence and what could go wrong there. <laughs> and um, eventually... Uh, some of the scientists involved, because there's a bunch of scientists involved here, uh, basically go into kind of a monster mode, although uh, those who are looking for full-blown monsters are going to be pretty um, disappointed by this because the monsters are mostly shadows and a sort of a hand puppet hand, furry hand, right? Sure. I mean, that's about it. It's, it's in some ways uh, an unintended or unofficial sequel to Val Luton's Cat People. Yes. Okay. Uh, a picture that uh, has more of a, frankly, has more of a universal pictures feel than a 20th century Fox type feel. And it's because, as you, yeah, you know why that is, of course. <laughs> Production values uh, of one studio producer don't change when the producer switches studios. You might be talking about Ben, uh, is it Pivar or Pivar? I've never known Ben that. Pivar. Pivar, all right. So would you tell the folks exactly what happened here, why Ben Pivar, who was associated with, among other things, the Rondo Hatton pictures, what, Pearl of Death and Brute Man and House of Horrors, um, why Ben Pavar ends up with a 20th Century Fox release? And studio intrigues, plus his willingness to look into the independent production field, and a lot of studio politics there. Well, that was about the time International was was uh, International Pictures and, and Universal. There was, was a, there was a hostile takeover at Universal, just as there had been a hostile takeover at Universal during the later 30s. Uh, the uh, the first takeover forced out the founding family. The mm -hmm. international takeover uh, basically uh, plowed the uh, 40s period universal into a stronger but smaller independent production company. And if you go back and read and go to the library and read the microfilm for trade papers from Hollywood during that period, and you find frequently Universal Pictures is announcing no more bees. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. <laughs> no, they, they kept, they kept, oh, we're going to be a classier studio. You know, it's like, okay. Um, you know, all due respect, but uh, Universal Bee Pictures, uh, to my mind, are more entertaining than their big serious pictures. And a little throwaway like She Wolf of London has as much merit as uh, a woman's vengeance. Sure. And never mind the fact that it was the B pictures, the horror pictures, especially, that kept them afloat. Yeah, that was the payday picture. And uh, right. And they, they couldn't turn loose of the cash cows, but they 
profess to be embarrassed by them. Right, and, and, right. And, and that's why this, and that's why this very Pivar style uh, creeper, the, the creeper, uh, mm-hmm. not to be confused with his uh, universal characters, his universal films character, the creeper. Um, that's how that ended up in a limbo and picked up as a, it's called a negative pickup. Uh, not implying an amount of money, but the acquisition of the negative by another studio. You know, it's pretty funny, isn't it, that uh, uh, you're talking about The Creeper, and of course The Creeper is one of the last great universal horror uh, characters, and it was Rondo Hatton who had Acromegalia. We've talked about Rondo, and everybody who knows horror knows about Rondo and his Mm -hmm. uh, his real life malady, but you know, the Brute Man, which Ben Pavar also produced, yeah. had a similar fate, right? It was a negative pickup of PRC, as I understand it. <laughs> Why did that sit unsteadily on the PRC brand? Boy, I'm telling you what, with Rondo Hatton. I mean, a Universal B, of course, looks like you, you put it in a, in a PRC studio's context, and all of a sudden it looks like an epic. It does indeed. That's right. Looked like gone with the wind for PRC. Oh, PRC's gone with the wind. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the creeper, on the other hand, you know, we've done some some 20th Century Fox films on on the podcast before, and 20th Century Fox B pictures. They had a certain look because 20th Century Fox, again, you know, if a Fox film had ever found its way to uh, to PRC, good lord, it really would have looked like an epic. That, uh, that, but, that's that's the that's the the curse of excellence. Yes, people come to expect a certain level of quality, and it's kind of it's a it's a challenge to the audience. For example, to put a double bill together consisting of one Fox B and one PRC. Right, right. <laughs> like, exactly. What's going on here? Yeah, and there's no there's no doubt which would be the A picture on that bill. Exactly, you know, but. You know, we like something like Undying Monster. I mean, it's still got the wonderful production values oh, yeah, because yeah, it's got yeah, 20th I, Century Fox. I've been, uh, I, I recently obtained a copy of a uh, almost lost Fox called Who is Hope Schuyler? Uh-huh. Tremendously, very short, like an hour in running time. Uh, right. A wallop of a picture that plays out kind of like. Uh, kind of like Roman Polanski's Chinatown in terms of intrigue and, uh, and has a real zinger of a punchline. And it's, it's, it's a murder picture, but it plays out with the same breezy quality that Fox put into its Michael Shane pictures. Right, right, with Lloyd Nolan, yeah. sure. I love those pictures. Those are terrific movies. Well, what we've got here is not a 20th Century Fox picture. As you say, it's a negative pickup. Right. So it doesn't look like 20th Century Fox. It looks like Universal. It looks, like, it looks like, wait a minute, what happened here? Well, that's what right. happened. And, and there are some familiar touchstones uh, to uh, Ben Pivar's Universal unit, including the... Uh, supporting presence of David Hoffman, Mm -hmm. who was uh, responsible for creating the very mood of Universal's inner sanctum pictures. Right, right. That's exactly right. Sure. And then, I mean, you talk about Google eyes. He was the one. (laughs) And it's got some really interesting characters. And, you know, June Vincent 
once you start looking for June Vincent, for one thing, she's very striking. And the other thing is June Vincent always had that kind of, the, she had that shock of white hair yeah. in front on either side. And I've been watching a lot of uh, Have Guns Will Travel because that happens to, uh, it happens to, to be showing while I'm on my exercise bike. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, June Vincent is in a punch of those. She was all over the place in television in the 50s and 60s. She has a really icy sort of quality. Yeah, she, uh, she, she could have been the prototype for, uh, for Abigail in the Swamp Thing comic. Yes. Yes, absolutely. She could have been that sort of no-nonsense, and especially in this picture, the no-nonsense researcher, sort of a sort of a snow queen, right? And just yep. or ice queen. And yeah. And she's just really, she's really good. I've come to really like June Vincent stuff a lot. Although she doesn't have as much to do as Janice Wilson. But poor Janice Wilson just has to play this incredible neurotic <laughs> throughout the whole deal, having these crazy dreams about cats some of them are very good some of the nightmare sequences are really nice in this picture mm-hmm. uh, but she she apparently as i have read uh so she had been in some betty davis pictures she'd been in some big pictures and then she of course ends up in 1948 and in, in this one in um in in the creeper which incidentally is named after the black cat in the movie Correct. is named the creeper yeah but uh she apparently didn't like the looks didn't like the way she looked on screen so she just quit she after the striking presence there's no accounting for taste right it, right did, but she did have her singing to fall back that's true. That's true. She did. And she kept on singing, but she got out of the got out of the picture business. You see some great sort of second string. Uh, I don't want to call them uh, antagonistic or villain people, villainous characters, actors, but Onslow Stevens, the yeah. uh, doctor in House of Dracula. And in uh, what's that? What was that crazy film uh, where they uh, back to back from the dead, back to life? The oh, name of that thing. Life where, returns. Life returns. Yeah. Life, yeah. life returns. Another, right. For you. Scientist picture. And you know, he's really good in this, and so is Ralph Morgan, and so is, and I never get his name right. Eduardo Cinelli. Eduardo Cinelli. Who was in, of course, Mysterious Doctor Satan is what all of the serial fans remember him for. He's terrific in that. Mm-hmm. And there's just and there's some just great character action. I really like the fact that that Onslow Stevens gets to gets to act sort of like a normal person in this. You know, which doesn't happen very often. He's got a really good set of matinee idol looks. He does. He often was typecast as as sinister or mysterious. And you know, wasn't he a, a Broadway guy as well, yeah. Michael? Yeah, I had that. Then he do some Broadway stuff. He he sure sure had that look, uh, kind of that Henry Hull vibe, you know, uh-huh. where he was doing a lot of stuff on 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 Broadway. Um, this was originally called the Cat Man as I understand it. Yeah. And then Republic, who, which had released Catman of Paris a couple of years earlier, objected. <laughs> and uh, so it became uh, The Creeper. And I think probably given who's involved with this, the, the notion or the uh, inference that uh, it was a Rondo Hatton picture uh, might have been intentional probably worked against it in the long term but yet it might have been a come on yeah yeah i mean you've got the creeper character millions had seen this character yeah 
And perhaps, you know, you're right. It, it didn't, it, it militated against it at the end, but uh, you've got the creeper and everybody's going in. And then of course, when John Bear Gray, I think is who says it, uh, says something about, well, uh, come on creeper. And here comes this black cat. And then, you know, okay, it's not going to be Rondo hat. <laughs> it's going to be a cat. Uh, and this picture has a lot to do with cats. There is just a buttload of cats in this picture. Just both, both right. Actually you see them and they're just kind of on the, on the outside. They kind of just infuse every scene. It seems to be about cats. Well, the notion being uh, this this mysterious serum uh, sounds sounds kind of like some uh, recent years crap crackpot uh, fantasies about curing the plague. Uh, right. The idea of a serum that can give a human being cat like attributes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not unlike not unlike H.G. Uh, Wells. Uh, Island of Lost Souls, and that's exactly right. That yeah, sort of thing. Um, people, uh, science in particular, uh, the more uh, radical areas of, of science or crackpot science, uh, tend to believe that. Uh, gosh, what if, what if we, what if we, what if we cross this this monkey with this human being or this? <laughs> next thing you know, it's. Uh, well, I mean, the, the the first Catwoman in the movies, probably in the 1932 Island of Lost Souls. I would think so with Kathleen Burke, right? The Panther Girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably so. A former dental assistant in Chicago. <laughs> how do I know that? How do I know that? Yeah, I'm yeah. just, just, I hadn't thought about that for years. There you go. Know. Well, you know, yeah, and we are. And also, I happen to know that in the in the film, I have no idea if this is really true. In the film, people becoming cats after death is known as metempsychosis. Mm. Metempsychosis. Now, probably we could probably start a Facebook uh, metempsychosis and get a lot of people that would be into that. But yeah, that's what they call it in the film, metempsychosis. Well, we need a new cult, don't we? We, we need a few more, don't we, in this country? That's exactly right. But it's an interesting little picture. It's not a great picture by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's like, you know, Pavar was always economical. He got you in. He got you out. It was entertaining. It was interesting. And even though it's 20th Century Fox, not universal, it's still it's still a, a, an interesting and and um, a, a great. I don't want to call it a time waster. People say, "Oh, it's a great time waster." Well, yeah. you know, you need sometimes you need to waste time and watch films like this. I guess. Well, if you can take if you can take home anything from the experience, it's that the universal di vibe did not die out all of a sudden. It kind of faded yes. away. Oh, that's right. And, and like an old soldier. It's exactly. And, and the, and the joy of re, of rediscovering that universal style in a picture outside the realm of universal is uh, like, wow, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. Well, of course it's interesting because the universal style defined the Gothic horror film, other studios, notwithstanding, but the universal style defined the Gothic attitude uh, from uh, the late maybe 1925 and Phantom of the Opera, right through uh, right through such uh, later pictures as 
well, Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. That violence, which were still going on then, yeah, yeah, resists. And uh, for for Universal to have uh, declared ser- seriously, well, we're through with the bees, boys. Uh uh-uh. uh No, they would never be through with the bees. They could call them something different, but it would never happen. And once again, I mean, I don't know how you discern, and this is probably a topic for another time, Michael, but I don't know how you discern when you're talking about a horror movie, the difference between an A picture and a B picture for Universal. Well, I mean, I'm assuming no Frankenstein. A picture, there are top of the line pictures. That's yeah, the top bill. The one if it went out on a double bill, which one would be the top? That's what I would consider the A. The B actually is an initial letter in the name of one prominent low budget producer. Also, the B stands. It's not some uh, not some school marmish grading system. It's mm-hmm. a, a, a shorthand for budget. Mm-hmm. There you go. Right, right. And what was the what was the initial? What's the initial thing you're talking about now? I think the listeners like to know that. I'd like to know. Columbia produces, and I would have to look this up because it slips my mind ever so often. Uh, one of the one of the Columbia producers had a a letter B in the name, and the memos, interoffice memos at Columbia said this is for the B unit, Briskin. Wasn't Bernard B.B. Ray, was it? No, 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 no. The, this, this was a, this was a, a, a second tier producer. Oh, a producer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. okay. All right. All right. Well, we'll do a little research on that and maybe yeah. reconvene on that and, and, uh, and see uh, in the next, uh, the next podcast, what we want to do next podcast, Michael, I, I don't want to sneak up on you with this, but I just saw back from the dead with Peggy Castle. Beautiful. And I think that might be an interesting thing because it comes along about the same time as the undead with the whole Bridie Murphy vibe. Yes, and take us right back to that that, uh, low-budget essence of the forgotten horrors thing. Absolutely. We don't want to get too far away from that, do we? Absolutely not. Well, we happen to be taping this, or that taping is not right. Joey, I'm sure you'll roll your (laughs) eyes at that, our producer. Across the table from a Joy Hamrick, thinking, yeah, taping, right? <laughs> and you're, yeah, and you're, you're doing it with kerosene. Um, but uh, we are doing this show. We're doing uh, on the same evening uh, or on the same day that Michael Nesmith passed away. Mm. And I was a huge. I didn't know it was called until a few months ago that you were called a Nez head if you were a Michael Nesmith fan. But <laughs> I was, I was. When I was younger, in uh, 70, I guess, when the first first National Band album came out with that beautiful, haunting ballad, Joanne. Ooh, that one, yes. Oh, my. I have always thought that Michael Nesmith, because of being in the Monkees, of course, and a lot of people just looking down on the Monkees as a pop group and all that sort of thing, um, was really lowballed as far as one of the guys who really started that uh, Southern California country rock thing. I mean, everybody talks about the Eagles. They talk about the Burrito Brothers, talk about the Birds of Poco, talk about International Submarine Band and Graham Parsons. But they never, no one ever mentions Nesmith doing these country music rock albums That's in the early 1970s. Yeah, Nesmith was, 
Nes Nesmith was like the ultimate combination of, of, of Leonard Cohen and Frank Zappa. And yet he had a very good way. Yeah, to put it. Well, yeah. He, he mm -hmm. had that. He had this Texas sensibility as an architect of the Southern California scene. And what's what amazes me is that the so-called Southern California scene descends from Texas artists. Tell me more. Uh, John David Souther from Amarillo. All right. All right. From the North Texas area. Uh, Who from the North Texas? I'm sorry. Pardon me, Nesmith. Nesmith, okay. And and the and the, uh, the that whole Texas, Texas, New Mexico rock scene that Norman Petty nurtured from, well, from Buddy Holly on down. Which I have to uh, inject here that you were a part of. Yeah, I, I did work for the Norman Petty Studios, and, and it was a, an enriching experience. Uh, As a one-handed piano player, if I'm remembering uh, Originally, right. I played left-hand piano while Norman's wife <laughs> handled the uh, right-hand treble. That's what I remember. That's how I remember it. So good, yeah. Well, yeah, I was, I was a schoolboy at the time, and uh, somehow Norman liked my boogie-woogie left hand. <laughs> go figure that i don't know but but nesmith yeah he could do no wrong i a uh, uh, lot of attention has been paid today to elephant parts one of his breakthrough productions uh, i've always been partial to dr duck mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which, is, which is like it's like a vaudeville show uh coupled with theater of the absurd and he did love the absurd. You know, he, he named his memoir Infinite Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. And that was about the uh, that was a reference to the uh, new uh, the New Yorker cartoon with the two hippos in the water. And one of them turning to the other and says, I just can't believe it's Tuesday. <laughs> and that really, if you think about that, that tells you all you need to know about Michael Nesmith and, and his approach to things. And uh you know, he was, he, and he also produced, I mean, he produced, he produced what he produced time rider. He produced uh tape heads. He produced, uh, 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 repo man. Oh yeah. Well, he, he, not only that, he also preceded weird Al Yankovic in song parody mastery, uh, taking the, the dear old beloved folk song, one ton of Mara and changing it to one ton tomato. <laughs> <laughs> and also we were talking before we went on the podcast we were talking about all the monster elements that were in the monkeys bet you you know and all uh, yeah i mean all the references to classic horror yeah 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 absolutely that's right so so we uh i i really feel like and you know one of the things that, that i'm i'm sort of sad about is that back in the day we were very influenced by Rolling Stone and the other sort of um, organs, uh, uh, publications that uh, that that sort of promoted the idea of of snark. And you know, one of the things that we've really been that you and I really agree on, and Joey agrees as well, is that is snark is just not a good idea. There's no good. No good comes out of snark. It reduces the holder of the snarky attitude to a mere mocking observer, incapable of getting anything good out of that which he's ridiculed. 
Yep. And it becomes, doesn't it, the uh, the Orson Welles thing about the about the eunuch and the harem, right? <laughs> Remember the old line where he says a eunuch and a harem? He knows how it's done. He sees it's done all. See, it's done all the time. He just can't do it himself. <laughs> and, you know, Michael Nesbeth suffered a lot because of snark, because of snark about the monkeys. Yeah, well. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's just, I think that he, I hope someday that people will understand just what he did in terms of country rock and the Southern California country rock. Well, especially. Yeah, well uh, the monkeys, the monkeys were uh, like a uh, originated as kind of a non-union sweatshop. Right. And Nesmith acknowledged as their leader by the other members, uh, basically turned them into a union act and straightened things out. I mean, Yep. Uh, the monkeys' serious music can be found even on their early albums. They were doing, they were doing, they were doing uh, a, a war protest as early as as last train to Clarksville. Yep, yep. They were, and also you think about Zoran Zam, things like that. Oh, I mean, stuff that yeah, yeah that's well, just they, amazing. They they have my attention even today, and. Yep. Once you get past the idea that this was a corporate packaging drill and the uh, the product, that is the individual artists, uh, rebelled in the context of their own enslavement. Right. Especially rebelled against Don Kirshner. Yes. Kirshner. <laughs> yeah, there, was, there was that going on. Yeah. Some plastic music here. That's right. Ooh. That's right. But but it we we just we're going to miss Michael Nesmith and I know he did he just finished the the, the last Monkeys tour with with uh, with uh, Mickey Dolan's and his own son was playing on that tour uh, Mike's as well so I just I you know it's a big deal to me I've been hearing from people all day long yep. because they know what a Nez head I am and and so we just wanted to kind of acknowledge Michael Nesmith and I want to acknowledge what you've got out there. Uh, Joey's going to get this out probably where people could order our product in time for Christmas. Absolutely. Are you going to do that, Joey? Okay, yes. Good. Oh, right. yeah. Okay. Good. Oh, yeah. All right. So what what Michael Price items, if you would like to support this program, what Michael Price items might one want to buy off the Internet? Well, the, the natural affinity among our listeners would be for any and all of the Forgotten Horrors books. Including fantasies in the sand. Ooh, yeah, yeah, fantasies mm-hmm. in the sand. Uh, the the fully collaborative forgotten horrors to the nth degree. Uh, the mm-hmm. title is actually a, a graphic novel of true crime stories called Lone Star Larson. And I sure enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. I, as I wrote you, I tell you, enjoy saying, "Oh yeah, I, I absolutely <laughs> enjoyed it." It is. A talk about, you know, one of your favorite adjectives, Michael, is piebald. Oh, yeah. And that is a piebald collection. <laughs> That's kind of the whole, kind of the whole point of it. How many, how many, how many moments of suspense, hilarity, wordplay, cornball, idiocy can you cram in <laughs> one, one compact set of 300 pages well i I don't know but we're going to see if we can fill it up until it busts uh i think my favorite page in the book is is a restored short story from the from a 1950s crime comic about uh corruption in the junkyard trade right (laughs) And, 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 and it has just this this idiotic title 
Scrap irony. <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know. I didn't think of it. it <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's like vaudeville. It's like you pick up a Michael Price book and it's vaudeville. You're going to find all kinds of acts and you're going to like a whole lot of them. <laughs> so there you go. And I have to say that uh, the 40th anniversary issue of Old Fears, yep. the first horror story I ever sold back in 1982 with Mike, with uh, with uh, Ron Wolf and I uh, collaborated on, is out with new stories from both Ron and me. And uh, it's uh, uh, in development and active development by Sony Pictures Television. And we're hoping that, that somebody's going to get really active with it and actually put the damn thing out. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. But if you want to take a look, it's uh, 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 Babylon Books did it. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful little, uh, little book that they designed. Also, I have to uh, uh, mention Christmas Tapestry, which is a collection uh, that was put together by Bill Bernhardt, who's New York Times bestselling author. Uh, he's got a story in it. Robert Brown and I have one of the cleansing stories in it from our from our uh, cleansing series, and that's available as well. We'd love to have you take a look at that, or just just take a look at anything that Michael or I have on uh, online. And uh, and uh, if you want to order it from your favorite bookstore, which is what I do a lot of times. Uh, take a look at it, order it from your bookstore, order it online, and we'll be delighted because your support is what keeps us going. <laughs> Sounds like a little Jerry Lewis telephonish well, there. Hey, you know, I mean, we, we learned that lesson early. Uh, <laughs> we, we certainly did. <laughs> Absolutely. My, my, well, my favorite, my favorite cousin was a carnival spieler. So where do you think we mm -hmm. get him? Well, and I, and of course, if you want to read about your favorite cousin, the carnival spieler, just look at uh, your uh, 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 Southern Fried Homicide. Books, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I've, I've read, I've read all about your cousin, knowing about as well as I do you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, happy holidays. Can we say that even though this is going to be, Joey, is it all right to Absolutely. say happy holidays? Uh, so, even though this is going to be in perpetuity, hey, we're, we're recording in. Yeah, we're recording on December the 10th, and uh, we will be back, we hope, in a month. We have taken a little couple of months hiatus, but we're going to try and get back on a, on a regular monthly schedule. And uh, the way that you keep these going is by uh, supporting us, and, and we appreciate your listening. Anything else I need to, I need to do, Michael, before we wrap it up? Well, we just uh, cooked that one up brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see you next time. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and thank you all for listening to the Forgotten Horrors podcast. There we go.